This is a rebroadcast of an Econofact Chats episode with Eduardo Porter of the New York Times from June 2020. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Econofact Chats. I'm Michael Klein, executive editor of Econofact, a nonpartisan web-based publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. At Econofact, we bring key facts and incisive analysis to the national debate on economic and social policies, publishing work from leading economists across the country. You can learn more about us and see our work at www.econofact.org. We're recording this in the second week of June, 2020. Over the last two weeks, the nation has been roiled by protests that at their core are about racism. So I'm very pleased to be speaking today with Eduardo Porter about his new book, American Poison, How Racial Hostility Destroyed Our Promise, which was just published. Eduardo writes about economics for the New York Times, where he was the economic scene columnist from 2012 to 2018, and he served on the Times editorial board from 2007 to 2012. Welcome, Eduardo. Hi, Michael. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Um, I began reading your book before the death of George Floyd. It's tempting to say that this topic has taken on renewed urgency in the wake of the events over the past days, but of course the urgency has always been there. You document in your book some of the long history since the Civil War that kept Black Americans as second-class citizens. Yeah, I, my argument is pretty straightforward. Uh, that kind of racial hostility that's the kind that allows to a cop to kill an unarmed black man in Minneapolis with a bored expression of a plumber fitting pipe while his colleagues look on, um, has pretty much warped the American experience since the birth of the nation. Straight, simple, uh, but it's true. It's embedded in every institution from the criminal justice system to the labor movement. It has stunted the American social contract. And it has allowed us to build a really weak society uh, compared to other advanced countries. Well, that's something that you know a lot of people know, but what really impressed me about your book was the breadth of knowledge that you brought to it from scholarly research. Um, I thought that was really impressive. I think you cite something around 300 scholarly articles and you make the research results really accessible and compelling, which as a board member of Econofact, you know, is what we try to do as well. When you were reading through this research, was there anything in particular that stood out, either about the approaches taken or the lessons learned? I mean, this book wouldn't exist without all this research in economics, sociology, history, psychology, political science uh, that has been going on, you know, for for decades now. I mean, I would say that one of the first pieces of research that that caught my attention when I was thinking about this was um, some old work by by Jim Paterba from MIT, who was uh, looking at attitudes towards school funding uh, by older Americans. So, you know, in communities where there were more older Americans, he detected a decline in, in, in the appetite for funding schools. 
And but what I what I uh, what caught my eye on this was that if the if the ethnicity of the elderly was different from the ethnicity of the kids of school age, the the distaste for funding of public education was actually a worse. You know, they were much they were less likely to want to fund education if the kids were of a different ethnicity or race. And so, I mean, from then on, you know, I just went through the literature and found just amazing stuff. Um, I I would point out that perhaps the guy, the, the scholar whose work I relied on most was probably Alberto Alessina from Harvard, who who passed away uh, just a few a few weeks ago. Um, tragic, tragic loss for the profession. Amazing, um, yes. Yeah, right. Father of political economy and and an overall really great guy. But he did re, he and colleagues did a lot of work on how ethnic divisions affected public you know public thinking about the social safety net and you know about public goods in general and you know implicitly about how we think of uh, a society should work. And he did a really interesting work comparing Europe and the United States to kind of like look at how come Europe had more robust safety nets and so on than the U.S. did. And, and he, you know, he had some really compelling work suggesting that it was about uh, America's, you know, uh, um, racial diversity, that kind of like these lines of race, racial hostility, racial mistrust kind of stopped us from building the kind of institutions that would help you know, our society navigate better as a collective. That, you know, some of these things are, if you, once you tell people that, it's like, um, they say, well, yeah, I guess that must be right. But what's really important is that it's well documented, which of course is, you know, what we try to do in Econofact as well. But you go beyond just the research. You also talk about the history of this. Um, Like I found it very striking that um, in your discussion of the New Deal and FDR, what FDR needed to get it through, um, you cite a political scientist who calls the New Deal affirmative action for whites. Well, yeah, because, you know, the New Deal was basically built for white Americans. Uh, to win support of Southern Democrats, Roosevelt basically ensured that major parts of the New Deal excluded non-whites. You know, the Federal Housing Administration, to take one New Deal creation, uh, uh, which expanded home ownership refused to, to uh, back loans in, in, in predominantly black neighborhoods or for black people, period. The labor codes allowed businesses to offer whites a first crack at jobs and authorized lower pay scales for blacks. Social Security and the Fair Labor Standards Act excluded at first domestic and farm work, which employed two out of three black workers. So there's a whole, you know, the, the evidence is, 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 is pretty, is pretty uh, hefty that the New Deal was uh, um, really welfare for, for whites. <laughs> yeah. and, and this casts a very long shadow, of course, to the present day because these things have long-lived effects. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, and, and, and not only that, I mean, there is a moment in history where, where Lyndon Johnson uh, um, um, tries to, to extend... Uh, I mean, under pressure from the civil rights movement, but there's this moment in the 60s in which kind of like legislation invites people of color to share the bounty of American citizenship, you know, to share into this safety net, to share into the programs. 
And, and one of the arguments that I make, and I think it's pretty well supported by research and by history, is once, you know, kind of like blacks are invited in with the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act and the Fair Housing Act and so forth, that's when the attitude of the American population towards the safety net entirely collapses. You know, support for some sort of social democratic ideal just collapses. And from then on, the basic argument the, 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 that, that welfare is unworthy, it rewards, uh, it rewards laziness, idleness, uh, and, and some form of corruption becomes ever stronger in American politics, and our safety net becomes weaker as a result. One of the, one of the things I found really interesting um, when you talk about the safety net, one of the most important parts of the safety net, especially for older Americans, is social security and as you point out social security enjoys more widespread support than many other safety net items but also social security benefits white americans more than members of minority because of just um actuarial things that white americans tend to live longer yeah yeah that's right and that's probably what makes it such so politically resilient but all these other uh, programs that have benefited minorities uh, uh, more, more, more generously are all very politically vulnerable, um, and so that's you know that's why you see Social Security is not is never touched, but the rest of the social safety net, you know, from Medicaid to um, the AFDC to food stamps, those are constantly under political pressure. And it's not just you know sort of. Um, grassroots political pressure, but it was used by politicians as well. You talk about um, Reagan's famous welfare queen example um, and the way in which that was a political talking point that was yeah. used. I, yeah, yeah. I think the inflection point is, is, is the presidency of Richard Nixon, where, where you know... He turns the argument, you know, so we're, we're moving from Lyndon Johnson, where the main programs are, are around civil rights and the war on poverty. And, and, and we move into to the Nixon era where the emphasis becomes crime and the war on crime and, and, these, and the, the, both the rhetoric and the, the, the newly empowered criminal justice system target very specifically uh, a people of color. Right. So the uh, and, and, and from that moment on, well, then we have, uh, I think, a continuum where uh, criminal justice becomes kind of like the main tool of social management. Um, and it is targeted squarely on 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 African-Americans and also Latinos. And the and, 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 and welfare just becomes increasingly demonized. And one of the one of the ways that it's demonized is with tropes like this, like the welfare queen, right? The welfare queen is is corrupt, uh, is a corrupt beneficiary of welfare. And this was a way of tarring welfare and welfare beneficiaries altogether. And of course, she's black. So this, you know, obviously has resonance today, the issue of, you know, the policing of minorities and money being spent for police forces rather than, um, community outreach and things like that. So, um, you know, this continues to the present day to, you know, literally today. Um, one of the other things I thought was really important and interesting about the book is that efforts to exclude African-Americans and Hispanics from the benefits of citizenship caused untold damage to white Americans too. 
Could you just recount the experience that you had in Harlan County in Kentucky in 2018? Yeah. Um, that, you know, you, you point out that 40% of the people live under the poverty line there and government assistance adds up to more than half of family's income. But tell us a little bit about your experience um, at the town hall meeting there. Yeah, it, it was quite surreal. Uh, you, you know, Harlan is this kind of legendary place in, in Appalachia's coal country, right? The site of the year-long strike by the United Mine Workers in the 1970s to improve wages and working conditions that, you know, made it into this movie called Harlan County, USA, which is fantastic. But uh, today, Harlan, Harlan has always been a very poor place and a very white place white place. There's very few immigrants, very few people of color there at all. And I, I think that today about a third of Harlan's adults hold a job only. But so I'm there, of course, in this place where the a majority of the population rely on government aid in one form or, or another. And I'm at this town hall where the, the governor, um, Governor Bevan, uh, he was a, a tea party uh, a favorite who was governor at the time, he was defeated in this last election by by Bashir. But he was I was there in uh, 2018 when he was he was governor, and he you know he takes the stage and you know he first he you know at, at the at the town hall in Harlan and first he starts talking about local stuff you know about bears and a, that rummaging through the trash and stuff like that and everybody's like yeah grunting and whatnot and suddenly he starts talking about the abuse of government welfare. Man, he got a standing ovation. And, you know, about how, you know, these these uh, lazy bums were abusing the government. And and these are guys that are all relying on 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 government assistance. So it was to me a bit of a, a disconnect. You know, they, they were, you know, the, the uh, Medicaid is immensely important for the population of this county. But when Bevan started talking about limiting access to Medicaid by requiring every able-bodied adult that wanted Medicaid to get a job, um, um, which would have bumped thousands of people in Kentucky off of Medicaid, these guys all cheer. So there's, a, you think, of this clear racial undertone to the, the statement. And that's what I find is really, is, is, is really interesting. Because then when I went in around and chatted with folks about their support for, you know, reducing access to Medicaid. And, and of course, this was a county that, that, that Trump won handily in the 2016 election. Um, they, the, the ideas that came bubbling up were a lot about outsiders taking advantage of the program. So it, I, I heard a lot about immigrants. Well, you know, we can't even help ourselves. How are we going to support immigrants? So we need to lock down on these programs because otherwise they're going to be abused. So there's a sense that there's some other outside a border uh, that encloses my tribe that is going to abuse the system. And that other is, has been articulated by the political system as, a, as an other of race, but it's not the only other. So for instance, in, in, in our current political system, immigrants are, have played the big role of other, right? And it's, 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 it's a role that mixes race and ethnicity and citizenship and language, right? The, the, the others in the campaign of 2016 were Mexicans who were streaming in across the southern border and, and, and bringing crime to the United States. 
But so, so the sense of protecting your own tribe from others and that there's this other group, which, are, you know, in the political debate has been people of color, um, is, is a, a powerful motivator for this uh, argument against welfare. Yeah, in the book, you, you, I think, do a very good job of mentioning that the American racial conflict is not just black versus white, but there's also the Latino and the Asian side to the story as well. And, and I like how you included personal touches, like the time you and your son Mateo were on the subway and he tells you, maybe we shouldn't be speaking Spanish. Um, you also worry that you know your son Mateo and your daughter Uma won't be accepted into the American melting pot. What do you see as a future for your children and for children of color more broadly in this country? Well, uh, I'm a pessimist, so that's why I took decided to to, to take a, a job in journalism. <laughs> so I find you have been um, an economist too in that way. <laughs> there you go. I could have I could have gotten that I could have gone that way too. Um, um, but let me let me put it this way. I think there are some reasons for optimism out there. If we look at, for instance, at the uh, at the demonstrations that we that have the, the protests across American cities, we see that there's a lot of you know young white people there too. You know, it's not just like in the demonstrations of the 1960s, which they were much more. Uh, uh, homogeneously uh, uh, black protesters against, you know, oppression by whites. The guys out there on the streets, there's a lot of, you know, of, of whites and Latinos and Asians out there protesting alongside um, African-Americans for, for and, and so that kind of... Polling, polling seems to suggest that it's, you know, even if they're not out there in the protest, there's relatively broad public support compared to the late 60s and early 70s. As well. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I, I was reading this morning that like two thirds of Americans support the 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 cause of the people out in the streets today, um, these days, and and so that you know, and you know, urban America is much more diverse than it was 50 years ago. People have learned in American cities to live together, to understand each other as individuals, as people, rather than as representatives of the groups. So I think that this whole idea that some people call contact theory makes sense that we can build a more of a sense of being one. But so every time I get this kind of like, yeah, I want to feel optimistic and warm and fuzzy, then you look out the window and you look at what's determining our politics today. And our politics right now are actually being driven by what I would call white identity politics of older whites. And so I kind of think they're, they're being driven by fear. So um, um, just as in the 1960s, where I thought uh, where where whites seemed to me to react against the civil rights movement that invited blacks into you know the the package of benefits of being an American implied. Right now, I see lots of whites that are super scared by the notion that like 20 years from now they are not going to be a majority of the population. And they are going to, at some point, lose a hold on political power that they've had forever. And so what, what I see now and what I see for the next two decades or more is a political conflict that's going to, in which older whites are going to be doing all they can to prevent uh, um, this loss of power. And I think that this fear is what has given us our current uh, president. 
And I, I, I think that this fear is going to be a very damaging and very powerful force into the future. And so, you know, that kind of tempers my optimism. Well, for a pessimist, there was some optimism there. So thank you for that. <laughs> Eduardo, thank you very much for joining me today. And congratulations again on the publication of your very important book, American Poison, How Racial Hostility Destroyed Our Promise. I hope your book gets the attention it so well deserves. Oh, thank you, Michael. I do too, man. I'm here. We're hoping together. <laughs> <laughs> Best wishes. Thanks for listening. This has been Econofact Chats. To learn more about Econofact and see the work on our site, you can log in to www.econofact.org. Econofact is a publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Have a good day.